Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On July 1st, 2014, an aerial photographer took advantage of the clear, sunny weather to go miles above southern Alberta. From the sky, the prairies and the cropland often look like a patchwork quilt. The pilot was contracted to do aerial surveying of several communities around Calgary that included Airdrie. From the twin-engine plane, a $1.5 million camera snapped a new picture every three seconds. The pilot realized, nine months later, by a stroke of fate, that he had captured disturbing images that became the final clue to a horrific plot. They have these cameras that are million-dollar cameras that they use, and generally the photo that you take is what we would see of aerial photos. It's it's like a square that you see, and you can kind of make out little buildings. But because of the the power of that camera and the power of his own computer, in fact, he was able to... um, At the time that we indicated an interest in the area and an interest in the aerial photos, he then um, zoomed in and zoomed in and zoomed in to the photos that ultimately we presented to the jury. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, I'll share part two of the story of Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness. This is Hunted by Evil, The Monstrous Acts of Douglas Garland. The day before those photos were taken, on June 30th, 2014, police issued an Amber Alert. Jennifer O'Brien found that her five-year-old son, Nathan, and his grandparents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness, were missing. She gets into the house and then she finds, she finds a, a horrific crime scene. Something very bad has happened to her mom and dad and to her, and to her son. That marked the beginning of the longest Amber Alert in Alberta's history. If you haven't listened to the first part of this story yet, I recommend you stop and listen to the previous episode before you continue on. And I need to warn you, the details in both episodes are extremely graphic and distressing. On July 4th, 2014, Douglas Garland was arrested. An RCMP emergency response team went onto the farm where he lived with his parents. They didn't find Nathan, Alvin, and Kathy. However, 
Superintendent James Hardy said there were some red flags. They came across a duffel bag that appeared to have um, weapons in it that would be used, could be used for a kill kit, what we call a kill kit, to commit a homicide. Inside the bag, officers found three pairs of handcuffs, a knife in a sheath, and a leather baton. That night, police photographed Garland and took note of four injuries. There were abrasions on his forehead, upper lip, right thumb, and he had a large bruise on his right knee. His shoes were also seized and sent away for forensic testing. At that time, there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with kidnapping. Instead, he was arrested on unrelated fraud charges. In the meantime, investigators got a warrant and began an exhaustive search of the expansive 40-acre Garland property, one that would become the biggest in Calgary police history. Investigators brought in an expertly trained cadaver dog named Sully, with a sense of smell considered to be 40 times that of humans. Constable Darcy Williams was Sully's handler that day. Immediately, he showed a lot of interest that what, in an area that looked to me like a burn pile. It was a, a pile of rubble that uh, was charred. He circled around and eventually sat at that, uh, at that pile. We continued on working kind of going east to west and west to east in a north direction, trying to serpentine our, our, serpentine our way through the wind. And as we started to move that way, uh, we came to a burn barrel and uh, he showed a lot of, infer- a lot of uh, interest around the barrel. His tail was wagging, you could see his breathing was changing, his t- nose was down, he was back and forth, and uh, he ended up sitting there as well. Sully became frantic when he approached a third location. It was kind of a green space amongst a bunch of outbuildings. Uh, I had never seen Sully act this way before, uh, but I'd seen it in other dogs, so my experience with working with a number of dogs and running training scenarios he started to run back and forth uh, on the grassy area, and his nose was to the ground, very similar to that of a tracking dog, which we don't generally see a lot of in our detection dogs. His tail was uh, wagging frantically back and forth, and he, he wouldn't stop. He just kept going around and like, back and forth, back and forth. And to me, uh, in my experience in dealing with dogs in that training there, it, it gave me a bit of a an indication that there was a large quantity of odor there, uh, almost to the point where he was overwhelmed. He couldn't pinpoint an exact location because it was everywhere, that he just couldn't stop. He just kept going because he was within that cone of scent that we call, and didn't want to leave it, but he he didn't, um, he couldn't pinpoint the exact location to sit. Uh, to me, right away, that was a huge, huge uh, indicator, uh, which I had mentioned to, to Constable Oxton and let him know uh, that they definitely needed to have a second look there. When children are involved, it's, it's more difficult when you have your own kids because it really makes you think back on how precious they are. And, you know, I remember going home that night and, and hugging both my kids. While police searched the farm, Douglas Garland was released on bail. The 54-year-old was under constant surveillance by an elite, specially trained, covert team of officers called Strike Force. He was not allowed to return to his parents' property, so no one 
including Calgary Police Superintendent James Hardy, expected what happened next. I have to tell you, I was, I was surprised. It gives you the level of desperation he's at, but then it also really sunk into us that this is the guy that is responsible. No question, he has got something on that farm he does not want us to see. Two days into his release, officers watched as he drove out to his parents' property. That night, as Garland circled the farm, Constable Jamie Parhar was working a night shift in downtown Calgary. She was a rookie, just 18 months into her time with the Calgary Police Service. Our sergeant, the guy that's running the street, he asked for a unit to volunteer to help with a traffic stop for a surveillance unit out in Airdrie. Should have been we get in behind that vehicle and we light it up with our lights and siren and he pulls over and we talk to him and that's all it should have been. That was what we had in our minds. So the how it actually transpired is very, very different from what we were expecting. Then we're told that the vehicle that he is in drives into the entrance of a field and that he gets out and starts walking. So now we have to try to find this field and find the vehicle and basically figure out what he's doing out here. Douglas Garland was on foot going through a field headed for his parents' farm. It was pitch black. Um, And I mean, it's straight up rural land. There are no street lamps. There are no, it's just pitch black. So you have the lights from your headlights in front of you and that's really all the light that you have. And we ended up getting to a fence that, um, like it was a barbed wire wooden fence and it would have destroyed our car if we had have tried to drive through it. So we just said, we're gonna have to go in on foot after this. High above them, the Calgary Police Hawks helicopter guided Parhar as she pursued Garland in complete darkness. The dramatic foot chase was recorded using the chopper's infrared camera. I think I might have had a flashlight in my hand, just in case, but we don't want to give our location away either. So that's why the radio is super low, and I don't want him to know where I am just as much as he doesn't want me to know where he is. Parhar didn't have time to consider the possibility Garland could be armed. Yeah, if I'm being completely honest, and it could have been because I was super new, it didn't even cross my mind. It just, all I had in my mind was almost a cat and mouse, like, I'm gonna catch you, I'm going to get you. And that's all I really had going through my head was where is he so I can get him. That's what you sign up to do. You sign up to catch the bad guy. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to catch him. The helicopter turned on its bright light to reveal Garland down on his hands and knees, crawling to try and escape. That's when covert surveillance officers pulled up in a truck. They called uh, the suspect out to them and my partner and I went in the trees and kind of flushed him out. At 1.30 in the morning on July 14th, 2014, Douglas Garland emerged, dropped to his knees, then laid flat on the ground. Parhar handcuffed him and he was taken into custody. So an RCMP member was waiting at the road when we got out and we transferred custody of the suspect to RCMP and RCMP charter caution for murder. So it was at that point that we knew he was arrestable for murder. Later that morning, Calgary's police chief made a heartbreaking announcement. 
two weeks to the day after the Amber Alert was issued, it was called off. All hope of finding five-year-old Nathan O'Brien alive was shattered. The decision was reached that this is now a homicide investigation. Well, motive is something that everyone is very curious about, but at this point, Police Chief Rick Hansen stressed over and over that releasing too many details could compromise the investigation. So they're going to have to wait to let those details come out in the court process. If somebody out there is thinking that there's one piece that's the smoking gun, one piece of information that has led to a break in the case, I'm here to tell you that this has been the compilation of an immense investigation. Chief Hansen said officers still hadn't found the child or his grandparents, but said investigators now believed they were murdered. We're always hopeful we'll find the bodies. We will, we know that, that the family won't have closure and many people in the community won't be satisfied and won't have closure themselves until uh, we find the bodies. So we will relentlessly pursue any leads uh, that may allow us to, to find the bodies at some point down the road. Later that night, Douglas Garland was formally charged with three counts of murder. With his hands cuffed behind his back and a homicide detective on each arm, he walked through an alley in downtown Calgary to the arrest processing unit. I saw this as my opportunity to try and ask him what everyone was wondering. Mr. Garland, can you tell us what happened to Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents? Can you tell us where they are? Do you plan to help police find Nathan O'Brien to return him to his parents? Do you have anything at all that you'd like to say? Mr. Garland, do you want to make any comment? Despite my best efforts, Garland refused to comment. He kept his head down the entire time and showed no expression on his face. Mr. Garland, do you have anything you want to say to Nathan O'Brien's parents? Where is Nathan O'Brien? Do you have any comment? As an entire nation and beyond struggled to come to terms with the news Nathan and his grandparents were believed dead, a memorial outside the Lickness home grew. On July 15, 2014, Green balloons were released all over the city and province in honor of Nathan, Alvin, and Kathy. A special event was held at a park where Nathan loved to play. Alvin and Kathy's son, Jeff Lickness, said that although murder charges had been laid, he was still clinging to hope his family would be found alive. I know the cops don't seem to think so. It really seemed like homicide reports, but I know... I know that my mom was really strong. My parents were really strong. Nathan's so strong. It's just so much energy. He has so much life in him. <sighs> that if anyone's going to make it through them, it's going to be... Any, if anyone's going to make it through this, it's going to be them. The next day, on July 16, 2014, Douglas Garland made his first court appearance accused of the second-degree murder of Nathan O'Brien and the first-degree murder of Alvin and Kathy Lickness. Shane Parker was the senior prosecutor assigned to the case. I've done it before, and we'll, we'll do it again. It's obviously a little more challenging because uh, bodies provide a whole lot of evidence for a jury. 
Uh, they provide a whole lot of evidence uh, from a forensic standpoint normally for the police. And without that, it's, uh, we're missing a few bullets. In the meantime, searches of the Garland Farm and the surrounding areas continued. Desperate for answers, Alvin's son, Alan Lickness, joined in the efforts. We got to lend support to uh, Dad, Kathy, and Nathan as well. We got to bring them out of wherever they're. Recovering the bodies is very important for the family to, to end this stage of the, uh, the crime. I spent an afternoon with Alan as he searched the countryside. He rented a bike to try to cover ground that a lot of vehicles couldn't. We've been in contact with the RCMP around uh, the Garland's farm. And uh, so they provide us the culvert map, which was really handy. Alan focused on land east of the farm, where Garland's truck could access. A truck that is not in good repair and that can only go so many places, like it's not a four-wheel drive. I'm looking for disturbed earth. I'm looking for rock piles that look like they might have been moved in the last little while. It's a needle in the haystack out here. I am trying to take a slow tour, and if I do see any two tracks off, I will, I will follow it. As the investigation continued and weeks passed, we learned more about the accused triple murderer. A federal court judgment related to employment insurance legislation and the Canada Pension Plan from 2005 revealed Douglas Garland suffered from Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADD. The justice noted Garland was an intelligent individual. He had aspirations of becoming a doctor and attended medical school in Alberta for a year, then suffered a breakdown and got in trouble with the law. Here's former Calgary Police Superintendent James Hardy. He had a criminal record going back to 1988, uh, mostly, um, mostly uh, crimes against property. But during the 1990s, a really interesting thing occurred. So Doug moved into um, methamphetamine production and the RCMP raided his, raided his place. He flees and he moves to British Columbia and he takes on a secondary name. While on the lam, Garland took on the name Matthew Kemper Hartley, the identity of a 14-year-old Alberta boy who died in a car crash in 1980. And he also makes fake credentials for himself, right from, from universities, is actually able to get hired into a chemical laboratory. So he's doing chemical analysis and he actually works his way up as a manager. Court records state Garland suffered another breakdown in late 1997. At that time, he obtained insurance benefits under the name Matthew Hartley. The RCMP caught up with him in 1999. Garland pleaded guilty to drug offenses and the charges in connection with the assumed identity. He was given a federal prison sentence. Parole board documents reveal he was assessed by the Correctional Service of Canada as unlikely to commit a violent offense. The panel expressed concern that Garland's mental health could lead to additional criminal activity. But another review by the board in October 2000 indicated his mental health had stabilized. In the end, he served only a few months. Garland moved back in with his parents on their farm just outside of Airdrie. 
He saw a psychiatrist every Monday morning in Calgary, but police learned he missed that weekly appointment on the day Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan disappeared. As investigators dug further into his past, they discovered Douglas Garland met Alvin Lickness nearly a decade earlier. Here's co-prosecutor Vicki Faulkner. Alan Lickness and Patty Garland helped to introduce him to Alvin. And Alvin knew that he was, that Douglas was very smart um, and he needed help with a patent for uh, something he was building to assist in the oil and gas field. And Douglas did work on that item that was later patent. Um, that item never made any money, although patented, never made any money, never made it anywhere, was never bought or sold by anyone. And the work that Douglas did certainly, I'm sure, very much assisted with that patent, but it wasn't all of the work done. He was not the sole creator of anything. Family said Garland developed a grudge towards Alvin Lickness, a grudge that continued to grow and fester over the years. The next thing that happened is that Alvin, at one point in time, while driving close to the farm, got a flat tire. He called Douglas Garland to come and assist him with the flat tire. It's our understanding that, and, and Mr. Garland said no, he would not assist him with the flat tire. It's our understanding that Alvin felt upset that he wouldn't come assist him with the flat tire when he called him because he was close to the farm. And it's also our understanding that, that Mr. Garland was very upset and it felt like he was not respecting him enough in asking him to come fix a tire and not understanding that, that he wasn't just a person who fixed a tire or did repairs, that he had a very intelligent and creative mind. The question was, would Garland kill Alvin and Kathy, along with their grandson, over a petty grudge? As the search of the vast Garland property continued, forensic investigators got lab results back from items tested in the Lickness home. You'll remember bloodstain pattern expert Sergeant Jody Arns from the last episode. She determined, along with a medical examiner, that it was likely Nathan, Alvin, and Kathy were still alive when they were taken. DNA results showed the blood found in the multi-level split home belonged to all three. And again, a warning, details are extremely disturbing. The DNA of Alvin was found mostly in the master suite area, uh, but it was also the drag trail that came out through the hallway and down over the stairs. And then there was another saturation stain and an impact pattern that was, um, that was Alvin's at the lower level landing. And based on the fact that there's a drag trail from the master suite down over that first level of stairs would indicate that he was probably initially hit in the bedroom and then dragged down. And then he would have been impacted again at the base of the, the lower level. Remember, it's believed Kathy and Nathan moved from the basement to the upstairs spare room after Jennifer O'Brien left the home. The stains in the room match that theory. The impacts to, to Catherine were quite significant in, the, in that front bedroom. 
and that she had been moved around several areas within the residence before she was dragged out of the side as well. Just based on the the layout of the house um, and the blood patterns that were there, it looks like she was moved from the front bedroom down to that first landing at the base of the first stairs um, and then through the kitchen down over the second set of stairs to that second or the first lower level where the garage and that and she was laid in that room as well. Then there was the handprint at the top of the stairs because the handprint was in blood and the blood did come back to be Nathan's and his grandmother's, Catherine's. So it showed that he was there when the incident was occurring, but it also showed that he was still alive. Prosecutor Vicki Faulkner said that would be key evidence in this case. The fact that it had some movement or drag of the fingers along the wall and at the height that Nathan would be seemed to show that he was steadying himself at the top of the stairs before going down the stairs, which would show again that he was alive at the time. Also significant were footprints left in blood. Those prints matched a Dr. Scholl's Delta II shoe. I'll come back to the footwear impressions in a bit. Douglas Garland's DNA was not found at the Lickness home. Evidence discovered at the farm could explain why. Investigators found Tyvek suits, the kind worn by crime scenes investigators. In fact, Arne said she wore one just like it during the exam of the Lickness home to avoid any contamination. Faulkner said there was further evidence found at the Lickness house that showed a struggle took place. There was also teeth found on the stairs, which were consistent with, but not definitively, Alvin Lickness's teeth. So what that seemed to indicate to us as we looked at each piece of evidence is that in particular, Alvin was at least walking down the stairs, but walking in a way that he himself even though he lived there, didn't have the sort of consciousness to duck under that headway, and so he hit his own head, potentially. And then the teeth, as we argued, would again be indicative of the fact that he was alive when being moved down those stairs, because there's no reason to hit someone or knock their teeth out if they're not alive. Police couldn't initially find a point of entry at the Lickness home. There was no broken window or broken door. The primary forensic investigator assigned to this case, Constable Ian Oxton, said further examination of the home revealed how the suspect got in. That's when it was noticed that the door lock on the side door had been drilled. The lock had been drilled twice in two locations. The first drill entered the lock and didn't hit what it was aimed for. So the second drill bit, the second hole, was actually what destroyed the tumblers to allow the lock to be opened. The whole lock was taken as an exhibit and collected. And later on, we provided that to, um, we took photographs as it was stripped and taken apart, and that was examined by one of the engineers who designed the lock. Investigators also tested Garland's green truck, the one that matched the vehicle caught circling the Lickness home on CCTV. 
We sprayed the chemicals into the back of the liner and the back of the truck. We took the tailgate off, we took the license plate off, and we sprayed all of that looking for positive results. We had at least half a dozen areas that had a positive result with the Blue Star, including the back of the license plate. And when I sent a sample of that license plate to the lab, it came back with Catherine's DNA. They also tested the shoes that Garland was wearing when he was first arrested. Alvin Lickness's blood was found on those shoes. Back on the Garland property, investigators discovered evidence that shocked even the most veteran officers. But police remained tight-lipped. With a jury trial on the horizon, it was important to protect the integrity of the investigation. The searches continued on and off from July 2014 well into 2015. In March, when there was no snow on the ground, officers were seen down on their hands and knees combing through every blade of grass on the farm. That same spring, following a preliminary inquiry, Douglas Garland was ordered to stand trial for not just two counts of first-degree murder, but three. The original charge of second-degree murder for the death of Nathan O'Brien was upgraded. All of the evidence heard was protected by a publication ban to avoid tainting the potential jury pool. Despite the exhaustive searches, the bodies of Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents Alvin and Kathy Lickness were never found. What happened to them remained a mystery until January of 2017. Today, the triple murder trial for Douglas Garland got underway. And a warning, the details in this case are disturbing. Global's Nancy Hickst is at court with the latest. Nancy? Linda, this is the very first time details of the death of little Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents Alvin and Kathy Lickness had been made public. So as you can imagine, it was extremely emotional in court. And the victims' families have been living a nightmare. And I warn you again that the details are very disturbing. Co-prosecutor Vicki Faulkner delivered an opening statement that painted a picture of a planned and deliberate murder by an obsessive and methodical killer and gave an overview of the chilling evidence found at the Garland farm. Alvin, Catherine, and Nathan were not found. But what stood out to the RCMP members during their search was a large burn barrel that was smoldering and as well, a bag that was found in one of the outbuildings. A bag that appeared out of place, as it was the only clean and new-looking item in the mountain of old and dusty possessions. What was in the bag? Handcuffs, a dagger, and a leather baton. Evidence is found all over the property. DNA of all three is found. The Crown's theory was that Douglas Garland violently took the three victims from the Lickness home, then killed and dismembered them and destroyed their bodies on his parents' farm. Garland's parents testified at the trial. His father, Archie, has since passed away. He told court that back on June 29th and 30th, 2014, when Nathan and his grandparents disappeared, he was very sick in bed on painkillers. Archie had an abscessed tooth, 
at the time. He was on antibiotics and in fact had been an IV antibiotics um, just before this time. And he was at home, but he was not well. Garland's mother, Doreen, told court she was shocked when she saw the Amber Alert on the news and told her son the Licknesses have taken their grandson. She said Garland told her he didn't want to talk about the Licknesses. More than 1,400 exhibits were seized from the Garland farm. Court heard on the fifth day of searching, police found a hard drive hidden in the rafters of the basement of the house. Tech crimes investigators sorted through nearly 200 gigabytes of information stored on that drive. Prosecutors said it provided a window into the mind of Douglas Garland. Meticulous, painstaking research about murder, how to kill without emotion, research on torture, research of the Licknesses, their social media, the classified ads for the sale of their furniture, and a Google map with a pin showing the location of 12338A Avenue Southwest, the Lickness home. He methodically researched not only ways to kill, but weapons to kill with. Not only how to perform autopsies, but tools to perform them with. And then you will see those well-researched tools, those well-researched weapons found on the farm. This was not just research. It was research that led to action. Research that led the accused to purchase weapons, tools for killing, and dismembering. Internet searches included how much does it take to cause a concussion, best butcher knives, and most painful torture. There were also repeated searches for ways to drill out or pick a very specific lock. He was obsessed with lock picking. I I went through his hard drive. and did that in the hard drive, of course, is another key piece of evidence. Um, that hard drive was full, full, full of lock-picking information. It was the exact lock that was drilled out on the Lickness home. You might wonder how Garland would know what type of lock the Licknesses had. Investigators went through hours and hours of CCTV dating back to when Alvin and Kathy first placed an ad on Kijiji for their estate sale. That's when Garland's truck was first caught on surveillance video at the Lickness home. When we say on June 13th that he started researching the slag BE365, we had that surveillance video. And those officers who went and looked at all of the surveillance video kept going through it hour upon hour upon hour, and they found on June 12th. On June 12th, that old green Ford truck drove past the Lickness home. On June 12th, that truck, we believe, stopped, and he went and looked at their home and saw that they had the Schlag BE365. And then, after we see his truck, on the late hours of June 12th, we see his research. His research solely focused now on that Schlag BE365 and how to defeat that lock. And we see in his research that defeating the lock involves drilling a hole through the lock. And when they pulled that, and once they went back through the hard drive, because that hole that was drilled in was minute, 
and they did not see it when they first looked at it. So after going through the hard drive, that lock was pulled off and there was a hole, a hole through the middle of the lock and a hole through the top of it as well. June 11th, as I recall, was the first ad. June 12th, he did his recon. June 13th, he started to research the Schlag BE-365. Police retraced Garland's purchases in the days and weeks leading up to the disappearance of Nathan, Alvin, and Kathy. Following his credit card purchases, we saw purchases um, that were of interest. And they, they wanted to make sure that they were following his credit card and him making those purchases. And so we did have him there. We had him there purchasing a meat saw, purchasing what's called posy straps, which are straps which are used to help um, move large items. He purchased a set of knives, a set of butcher knives. So we see those purchases that match the research. And what we also saw from his computer is you can see the times that he researched the tools and coincided with looking at his pictures of gore, looking at his pictures of diapered and restrained women. So each of the research would go back and forth between those horrific photos, the research on how to commit these offenses and the purchasing of those tools. I can't say what happened at all, but what I told the court, what I tell the jury, is what we found and the research that was consistent. Investigators also looked for CCTV from homes and businesses. They wanted to see who came and went from the home after Jennifer O'Brien left on June 29th up until when she returned on June 30th. Here again is Superintendent James Hardy. We ended up with 50, I believe 50, CCTV uh, footages that we had to go through. We were able to trace that truck by movement from the time frame that we saw it at the, um, at the, around the area of the crime scene, not right at the crime scene, but pretty close where it was parked. We were able to trace that truck by CCTV all the way out to Airdrie. Garland's truck was captured on video, passing by the Lickness home just after 3 a.m. June 30th. Jurors were shown a video that showed a figure get out of the truck near the house at about 3.20 a.m. Then, about two hours later, a figure was seen walking back to the truck. Next, the video showed the vehicle leave the area and head north of the city. At this point, the truck had something white in the box. Further CCTV tracked the truck north of the city towards Airdrie and the Garland Farm. Then, at about 7.30 that morning, the truck was back in Calgary, driving in the opposite direction with no contents visible in the back of the truck. Court heard that as police continued their painstaking search of the Garland home, they found a multitude of books. Senior Constable Ian Oxton said many contained alarming information. They're actually very, they're very frightening what's in there. The Be Your Undertaker book describes, there's a number of chapters, it describes how to dispose of a body, how to get rid of different methods of disposal. The Silent Death book describes how to 
commit homicides and not be caught. There's different techniques on how to kill people without getting detected. And I remember going through the Undertaker book, and as I was looking, flicking through the pages, I found a blade of grass in the, the book as I was going through the pages. So, to me, that was um, that had been reviewed prior to this incident. Yes. Ian Oxton is a former British soldier. He spent time in Bosnia during the war, so he's experienced a lot of trauma. He's also a veteran forensic investigator with the Calgary Police Service. Oxton spent two years working on this case. It took that long to go through the evidence recovered from the Garland property. He said from the moment he entered that farm, he was met with one horrific discovery after another. The burn barrel was still warm to the touch, so I knew pretty quickly that this had been used. There was too much of a coincidence. This had been used for some sort of evidence destruction. We actually collected the barrel itself, and there was a propane tank with a tiger torch attached beside it. We used those, and we obviously once the barrel was emptied and we collected all the exhibits, we did a test burn where we put some wood and some items in it. We burnt it to see how hot we could get the barrel. And within a few minutes, we had it to 1,000 Celsius in less than five minutes. What can that kind of temperature do? Do you that, know? That will, that will burn pretty much anything that goes into that barrel except metal. I'll come back to the burn barrel in a bit. But first, I want to go through the other items found in the Garland home and in the attached garage. It was packed to nearly the ceiling with boxes. In the garage, uh, we had the clear team the RCMP clear team come through with the hazmat suits because of the chemicals that were in there. Uh, we couldn't go into it. They found a bottle of chloroform, which was half full. Chloroform is a potent anesthetic. In the basement, investigators found key evidence that tied Garland to the footprints found in blood at the Lickness home. We found the shoebox, big bright yellow shoebox in the corner of the room, stacked on other shoeboxes. The shoe box itself didn't contain the shoes, but at least we had the box. We had a link between the crime scene now and that room. I should note, investigators never found the Dr. Scholl's shoes. Police believe he got rid of them. The shoes he was arrested in, the one with Alvin's blood on them, were a different pair. Forensic investigators meticulously scoured each of the buildings that were scattered throughout the property. In... Um, Outbuilding one in the rafters where the cadaver dogs are indicated, and we found a number of boxes. One of the boxes contained a lot of handcuffs from different types, different styles. Another box contained leather restraints, sort of hospital restraints. And then a third box had weapon parts such as silencers, barrels, handgun slides. We had a taser cartridge. We never did find the taser, just the cartridge. Um, holsters that kind of equipment. And in another location, also in the rafters, was a box containing lockpicking devices, like tools for lockpicking, uh, broken padlocks, where it looks like someone has been using the tools to practice picking locks. We had assistance from the RCMP identification section, and they were testing light switches and using chemicals for blood stains. So they found blood stains on the light switches about building one. Those stains did not provide enough of a sample to determine whose blood it was. Before I go any further, I need to warn you again, what I'm about to share next is extremely disturbing and graphic. Some of the most violent details imaginable. 
but they're critical to explain the magnitude of what happened to Nathan, Alvin, and Kathy. Oxton said he needed to focus on looking for things that stood out. And given a lot of the items on the farm looked old and dusty, ones that weren't were really noticeable. So our building number three, that's one of those, um, when I arrived immediately, I saw there was a pair of rubber boots, there was a pair of green rubber gloves on a, on a barrel, and in, just inside the threshold of the door was two large meat hooks and seven knives that had been laid out. And again, they looked like they'd just been cleaned. So I quickly, I collected those immediately before the search teams arrived. They came back with all three victims' DNA, with Alvin's DNA, Catherine's DNA, and Nathan's DNA on those boots. On the meat hooks, uh, the DNA from Catherine Lickness was recovered, one of the meat hooks. When this evidence was presented in court, jurors were asked to handle an evidence bag holding the two meat hooks so they could feel their weight and strength. It was one of many emotional moments in the trial where family and friends of the three victims broke down. Oxton continued to describe the evidence found on the farm. Our building three was two rooms. One was a, I think it was a water pump or a generator room, and then beside it was a workshop, which had a lathe and machining equipment. So in the generator room, we had the knives and the meat hooks, and on the ground we could see the absorbent powder that had been put down on the floor to absorb whatever was on the floor. And then in the room, the workshop next door, we tested the light switch using a hemostics and leucal crystal violet which is a chemical which turns purple when it hits the blood and other, other items as well, but quite often blood. And we got a positive result there. And the DNA from that was combined, I think it was Alvin and Catherine Lickness. One of the most shocking discoveries came from outbuilding number one. It was a hacksaw with a 25-inch blade. Well, when I saw the hacksaw, I knew right away that because it was so clean and pristine compared to everything else in that room. So the room itself, it's an old storage shed and there's lots of equipment and apparatus and electronics and just general things laying around, but they're all covered in dust. You can see they haven't been handled for some time. And then the back corner of the room is the hacksaw, which is, it's cleaned. It's very obviously been used recently. It is shiny and sparkling. It's definitely been used. So you combine that with the fact that the burn barrel was still hot. That to me indicates that's an item that's been used. We submit those exhibits again as a rush. Quite a few of those items were driven from the crime scene direct to the lab for you know, rapid processing. Under the hacksaw was a bottle of blood stopper, an antiseptic blood clotting powder. Also found nearby was a bottle of RNAs away, an agent used to destroy DNA. So the RNAs away is a cleaner that you would use. We use it in our crime scenes building. Um, when we have our storage sites, we clean it between cases to not cross-contaminate. Cross and that's what it's a DNA cleaner. It's to eliminate DNA and RNA from um, exhibits or clothing or whatever. Although it appeared clean, forensic tests revealed both Nathan's DNA and his grandfather's DNA were on the hacksaw. Well, that to me is the threshold where it's, okay, well, this is now moving to a recovery and not, not a life-saving event once those results came in. Oxton told jurors about the area known as the South Burn Pit, where Sully, the cadaver dog, had indicated. So the South Fire Pit area is between the burn barrel and between the South Outbuildings. And we could see that area has very long grass. It's probably chest height. 
and we could see there was recent tracks, the grass was compressed from two parallel tracks, probably a truck going into that area several times. So what we did initially is the search teams were finishing with the buildings, they were then asked to search the, the ashes. So they would screen through the ashes looking for large items first, large evidence, and then later on we collected all of it and did it with a much smaller, more detailed search later on. Oxton said 120 gallons of ashes were seized from the pit. In those ashes were bone fragments and possible teeth, which were sent to an expert forensic dentist for examination. We had a number of uh, human teeth. Um, he wasn't able to identify them to family members from dental records because of the condition. However, there was one tooth that he confirmed was a child's tooth. Court heard it was a molar that would be found in a child's mouth between the ages of two and a half to 12 years old. Nathan O'Brien was just five years old. As I mentioned earlier, officers scoured areas of the property down on their hands and knees. What they discovered was horrific and could easily have been missed if they had not used such extreme measures. The pieces were the size of a thumbnail and they were just burnt, very fragile pieces of material that were, that was, it, we could, quite obviously it was burnt flesh, but it was the very small and very, very fragile. So I collected those exhibits, um, put them straight into an envelope and then they were sent to the lab. So there was minimal processing of those because they were so fragile. They were both uh, fragments from Catherine Lickness. Oxton choked up and fought back tears as he told jurors of the months, 550 hours in total, he spent screening the ashes collected from the farm. So I was sifting the barrel later on back at the crime scenes lab and I was going through the process of screening the, the ashes. And I came across a piece of material that had a different texture to it. And uh, when, when I contacted, I realized it was, again, it was burnt flesh. I mean, I can only imagine what was going on at that site, but um, I'd imagine there would be a lot of haste to what was going on to get that done effectively and quickly, in addition to the cleanup and all the items, the tools, all the other things that were used. Does it go through your mind, what if police wouldn't have got to that property for another couple days? Like, would have, what difference that would have made? Yes, I think we would have had a fraction of the evidence that we ended up gathering. Like timing was important? Yes. For weeks, the trial was day after day of unrelenting and horrific evidence. The justice presiding over the case took time on several occasions to encourage jurors and let them know he found certain testimony difficult as well. But it was the evidence gathered on July 1st, 2014, from the air above the Garland farm that was the most shocking and heartbreaking of all. It's very common in an investigation, particularly where a crime scene is a large area, that you actually go back to the city and you get the most recent mapping. We wanted the most recent aerial photo of that area, mainly to show the jury the vastness of the size of the property, 40 acres. Um, and all of the different outbuildings, because we needed to tell the jury outbuilding one, two, three, the two sheds, the burn barrel, the greenhouse. We needed to show them each of those different spots and what significance they each had. Um, so we wanted to pull aerials. 
they have these cameras that are million dollar cameras that they use and generally the photo that you take is what we would see of aerial photos. It's, it's like a square that you see and you can kind of make out little buildings but because of the, the power of that camera and the power of his own computer in fact he was able to um, at the time that we indicated an interest in the area and an interest in the aerial photos he then um, zoomed in and zoomed in and zoomed in to the photos that ultimately we presented to the jury. Again, I need to warn you, these details are extremely disturbing. There was sobbing in the courtroom as the horrific photos were shown. Those pictures have never and likely will never be made public. They were sealed by the courts. The prosecution told jurors the images were as close as you get to an autopsy photo in this case. In Crown's opinion and theory, those photos showed the bodies of Alvin, Catherine, and Nathan lying in the grass at the far end of the farm by two sheds. They were lying prone in the grass it appeared that Alvin and Catherine, who were unclothed except for diapers, adult diapers, and Nathan, who seemed to be uh, curled up. Very difficult in terms of the ability of the camera to zoom into that point. The area shown in the photographs was by the furthest south outbuildings, where the grass appeared to be chemically burned. The following day, when the plane flew over the farm again, the three figures were gone. The prosecution argued Garland plotted Alvin and Kathy's kidnapping, torture, and killing. And when Nathan was there, he worked the child into his plan, alleging the three victims were then dismembered and burned at the Garland farm. Jurors were reminded of evidence pointing to a struggle in the home and Nathan's handprint on the wall. The Crown argued all three were confined and taken against their will to the property where they were killed. It took jurors just eight and a half hours of deliberations to reach their unanimous decisions. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. It's been almost three years since that missing persons call first came in. Tonight, finally justice for the family and the victims who vanished that night. Douglas Garland killed Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness. Convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, Garland now faces the longest sentence in Canadian history. Nancy Hicks has been covering this story since the outset. And Nancy, an emotional end to this chapter of an agonizing journey. It's hard to describe just how tense it was in the courtroom as we waited for the jury to come back with the verdicts. You could have heard a pin drop in that room and then just overwhelming emotion as one by one the jury read out the verdicts finding Douglas Garland guilty of all three counts of first degree murder. Family and friends of the victims applauded in court as the maximum sentence possible was handed down, life in prison with no chance of parole for 75 years. 
the pain in that courtroom the pain Garland has caused can only be called incomprehensible. He will be 129 years old when he is eligible for parole. His sentence first began when he was arrested and charged with murder on July 14, 2014. So of course, being 129 years old, he will die in prison. Then, just hours after his sentence was handed down, while in a common area of the Calgary Remand Center, the now convicted triple murderer was attacked from behind by fellow inmates. He suffered minor injuries and spent two nights in hospital. The incident was captured on CCTV. Just a few weeks later, on the same day he was transferred to a federal prison, he suffered a second beating. Garland was found breathing but unresponsive in his cell at the maximum security Edmonton Institution and taken to hospital in stable condition. Sources said he was later transferred to an out-of-province institution. Garland appealed both his convictions and his sentence. The Alberta Court of Appeal has reserved its decision on whether to grant a new trial for triple murderer Douglas Garland. The man who killed five-year-old Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents wants his three convictions of first-degree murder overturned. Nancy Hicks joins us with more. And Nancy, the appeal centers around how evidence was gathered. The defense presented lengthy arguments, including the claim that Garland's constitutional rights were violated. Garland appeared in court in person for the appeal hearing, wearing a long-sleeved blue shirt and jeans. He's seeking a new trial or convictions for lesser offenses. Defense argued comments made to the jury by the original trial judge about the graphic evidence prejudiced the jury against Garland. They also took issue with the original search of the Garland farm and Garland's detention by police. And the Crown argued the conviction should stand. The appeal justices reserved their decision. Since then, the Alberta Court of Appeal has upheld the convictions for three counts of first-degree murder. His sentence was also deemed fit. Life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 75 years. The Court of Appeal panel noted, quote, his lack of remorse and conduct that speaks to a character that is beyond ordinary human comprehension of evil, end quote. Even after the trial and his triple murder convictions, there are still questions that remain unanswered. That's because there was evidence found on the property, including DNA in the burn barrel, that was never matched to a known victim. Do you believe that Douglas Garland could be responsible for other homicides? You have only so many individuals with this particular psychological background in your society, right? And is, again, I look at guys like Willie Picton, look like guys like Clifford Olson, you know, um, those, those individuals, multiple, multiple deaths of individuals, right? So is there, is there a possibility that Doug Garland's killed before? I would say there's a, there's a very good probability he has. I think in, in, in Doug Garland's case, um, the investigators would love to talk to him about, about other investigations, right? He's got 75 years in jail, right? But to clear his conscience and anything else, you know, you're sitting in a jail cell, right? And it's, um, you're thinking about this every day, here's your chance to clear your conscience and, and 
be able to opportunity, right, to, uh, to move on in life. Douglas Garland has declined my requests to be interviewed in prison. The bodies of Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan have never been recovered. That is our, our daily prayer, this is to bring him home so we know where he is. Douglas Garland robbed two grandparents of their golden years and robbed a five-year-old child of his future and the promise of what might have been. But their families refused to let the evil he brought on their lives consume them. Instead, they remember the love they shared. Alvin was driven and caring. Kathy was the glue of the family. And Nathan was their superhero. A foundation in Nathan's name was created so his legacy can live on. Our whole thing with keeping Nathan's spirit alive is to do good in his honor. Like we remember when we needed uh, assistance uh, mm-hmm. with the loss of Nathan and her family. And it, it kind of reminds us that uh, there's many people that need assistance all the time out there, especially children that don't know what's going on or why they're in pain. Fundraisers have included Calgary police detectives and Nathan's older brother. He meant everything. He was my brother. He was, he was fun to play with, and we played a lot of hockey together, so it was great to be out here playing his game. The pain will always be present, but Rod and Jennifer O'Brien choose to focus on the good times and do all they can to honor Nathan. How lucky we are as parents to have this and uh, to do this for our son, Nathan. I miss our family. I miss having three boys in a loud house and seeing the boys just roll around together and just play fight and love each other. And I miss everything. Me too. You know, I just miss having him around. He was everything for us and he still is. I miss his hugs, I miss, miss brushing his teeth, I miss sitting in his room. We always knew how lucky we were prior to um, the incident. We were certainly so proud of Nathan and we will be forever. The impact of these crimes continues for everyone involved. That includes me. This is one of the most disturbing cases I've ever covered and shared on Crime Beat. Thank you for joining me this week and for letting me share Nathan, Alvin, and Kathy's story with you. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and you can join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.